Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. I'm going glasses look today. It's time, I think, to just relax after this crazy weekend. I've been up at like 3 a.m. for multiple days in a row at this point. Uh, I don't know what day it is in Australia. I know that it's Sunday over in the United States, so I guess it would be Monday over here. And I've just been watching basketball nonstop at this point. So you guys get me in glasses, you get me in the hat. We're not going nuts today. We're going to talk about basketball. TCU Gonzaga is in the waning stages. Looks like we've got 11.42 left. That will be the last game that we talk about, I would imagine, just because it's live right now. And then we're going to start with everything that happened over the course of the second round. Is uh, I believe that was Malachi Smith that just drilled this three with Gonzaga. So... Adam, I'll just start here. How's it going? How was your week? You got to go away on vacation before everything started here. Uh, I am just really excited for you that you're back. Yeah, thank you. It is uh, strangely good to be back. I love vacation. I love vacating and getting away for a little bit. But uh, at around 11.55 a.m. on Thursday, I kind of gravitated. I stood up from the pool and I walked to the, the bar at the pool. And uh, said, excuse me, do you happen to have true TV here? And uh, that ended up being the rest of my afternoon. I caught firm in Virginia to get going. And the rest was kind of history. My my wife was a great sport staying in and, and watching a bunch of basketball games. We got back at, I want to say, three in the morning it was about when I went to bed last night, just from all the travels and getting back and woke up this morning, had about an hour and a half. And then game started and here we are still going on. So like, it's a dream, honestly, like I love it, but uh, I think I'm, I'm with you there. This is like the hat on. If I had glasses, I would be wearing them right now too. Like, let's just power through this, man. A hundred percent. You get to that point. I love basketball. I love everything I've gotten to see this weekend. You get like a little bit worn down by the 80 or by the 48 game stretch that just occurred, right? Especially when you're waking up at 3 a.m. and may not have all of your faculties at that point. Let's dive into what we saw in the second round, though, because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the second round. If you're looking for analysis on the first round, two days ago with Mark Schindler, I recorded a breakdown of all 32 games that occurred in the first round. We talked about all of them on some level. Please go listen to that. This is going to be on the second round. We'll start with this. What do you think is the biggest takeaway? What is the biggest story? What is what is the thing you just can't you know stop yourself from wanting to talk about from the second round that we saw? So uh, for me, it continues to be an overarching theme of the NCAA tournament and really the college basketball season this year at large, which is experience wins. And there have been a lot of young guys, a lot of talented freshmen who are going to go in the first round, if not the lottery in June's 2023 NBA draft, who have struggled. And the reason they have struggled doesn't have much to do with their long-term upside. It doesn't devalue them as prospects to win in today's college basketball landscape. You need age, you need experience, and you need toughness. And Unfortunately, it's just really hard to get all three of those in a a freshman. You really don't get experience in them, but toughness, shot making, being able to show up on the stage when it's the biggest and brightest against experience, hard to really do. Really, really hard to do. And I think that it speaks really well uh, to Brandon Miller that he was able to do it uh, in Alabama's second round game, particularly against Maryland. They win that game by 20. It 
seemed like it was just never really close in the second half at the very least. I think it was, what was it? It was like 28 to 23 or yeah, something. Five point, and then, five point game at the half. Miller was one of the only guys for Alabama who showed up early. You can make a shot and then they steamroll them coming out of halftime. Totally. So the thing that I guess I want to talk about most, I'm glad that you brought up the experience is the talent level across college basketball this year is we've talked about throughout this entire season is very flat in comparison to what we've seen. And by that, I mean, players are being spread out more. The fact that there are more 23 and even 24 year olds that are playing within college basketball, a lot of them at the mid-major level at this point has set up a circumstance where these mid-majors are ready to compete, you know, like Fairleigh Dickinson, FDU, they're led by two 23-year-old guards, 24-year-old guards. I don't know how old they are, but they're both fifth-year seniors going against freshmen for Purdue. In that four-year age gap, you could feel that on the court when you were watching them. So I say all of this to say that this is completely unpredictable moving forward. I think Alabama is the clear favorite moving forward. I picked them to win all of the brackets that I did. But, like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen here. I have no idea what's going to happen here moving forward. And that's really cool. That's what makes the tournament so great. I think it's even more so uh, unpredictable than what we've seen in the past, which is awesome. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it and talk about some of these games here. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun thus far. Obviously, the upsets, the Princeton run is amazing. You know, Fairleigh Dickinson doing what they did. No, 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 no. Time out. I'm, we need to stop there. We need to give Adam Spinella his flowers regarding <laughs> Princeton. I completely shut him down on the bracket show. I was like, oh, Arizona, they're too big. They're too uh, talented. I love Princeton. I love what their staff is capable of. I'm sure they're going to come up with a great game plan, but no way. Princeton's still alive. Princeton's in the Sweet 16. Adam Spinella is a genius. Let's go. Oh, I don't know about genius right there because I didn't even pick him in my own bracket. I, I flirted <laughs> with the idea and I said, now nah, it's kind of bracket suicide to pick a 15 or a 16 seed to, to win in the first round. But yeah, credit to Princeton. Like they are one of the the more versatile teams that you'll find out of the mid, mid-major level in all the different things that they do, some of the players that they have to impose their style of play upon others. They're tough, they're disciplined, they're experienced, and and they really have stuck to their game plan over the course of the last two games and just chipped away and, and really annihilated teams uh, on this run. Drew Timmy just hit like a step-back three-pointer, by the way. Oh, so th- this is where we're at in the proceedings with Gonzaga TCU. We might be able to talk about this game a little bit sooner than what we thought. Uh, let's talk about one of those games that I think embodied that idea of experience and flat talent level versus freshmen and very highly uh, talented group of individuals that really came together late in the season as a team, but seemingly just never got it going against Tennessee. And that is Duke, Tennessee. Tennessee wins this game by 13 points. Duke scores 52 points in a game that was like a Tyrese Proctor coming out party. He was phenomenal and just nobody else on offense at the very least. It felt like was there to join him. And I really like what Tennessee did from a game plan perspective in this game. They just like let Derek Lively do whatever he wanted. They were just like, we're going to sag all the way off of Derek Lively. 
we do not care what he does, and you guys go ahead and do whatever. If he's within five feet of the basket, we'll guard him. But otherwise, we're going to make you guys win four on five, basically. Uh, And Tyrese Proctor did that for a stretch there. But for the most part, if you're getting into a defensive battle with Tennessee, where Tennessee is able to out-physical you, out-muscle you, kind of push you around, which of course they're going to be able to to Duke. Duke is filled with, you know, 19 and 20 year olds. Tennessee is filled with 22 and 23 year olds. It just felt like you could really, you could really feel that strength and that physicality and that defensive cohesion in a real way in that game. And props to Tennessee. Uh, they deserve all the credit, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm with you there. I want to give credit to Tennessee where credit is due because they had a great game plan. They stuck to it and they were just the tougher, grittier team for 40 minutes. Uh, I think this game revealed a lot of the flaws of Duke as a team this year, as well as some of the individual prospects that they have on it. Let's start with the team and the collective first. They just missed another creator on the perimeter, somebody that can go out there and get their own shot reliably. Like Proctor had to have one of his best games of his career. Jeremy Roach wasn't terrible throughout, but it's still not enough firepower on the perimeter to be able to, to win them games. And we saw that throughout the year when, so many possessions would stall out of Filipowski, sometimes Mitchell, Lively, whoever else is on the floor, just kind of pinging the ball back and forth, looking for somebody to be able to attack and create something. And every possession for Duke during the stretch run of the season where they needed a bucket stalled out to a Tyrese Proctor high screen and roll. And if you're asking me, if you're going to be one of the 16 best teams in the country and be able to continue to advance, that's probably not going to be your bread and butter. As, as well as Proctor played against Tennessee, he's not built to be a number one scoring option. He's much more of a facilitator who's surrounded by shooters and uses that to leverage his ability to get to the rim. And yeah. this, this Duke team just didn't have another perimeter creator, didn't have another way of, of getting through offense. And what they ran into against Tennessee is a team that can lock you down a little bit in the pick and roll and shut off all of the options that tend to pop up. And, and Proctor had to have a career night just to keep them in it from that perspective, because there just was not enough offense from anywhere else. Maybe that's the, that's where we transition to Kyle Filipowski. Like I I kept thinking about how much this team would have benefited from having Trevor Keels come back for another year, just another guard and another physical presence who can hang with that Tennessee team. Like they just, they very much felt like freshmen and they very much felt like a team that didn't have any perimeter scoring depth. Well, and, so I, I talked to obviously I have a lot of friends that gamble on college basketball. And the thing that I told them was I, or at least two of them was I felt like we would know how this game was going to go within the first 15 minutes or so. And a lot of it would be dependent upon how the officials called the game. And I felt like very quickly we had a very real inclination that these officials we're just going to let these Tennessee dudes be super physical and just let like Euros Plavšić just like beat the shit out of whoever in the paint. Right. And look, I'm not, I'm not here to like complain about Euros. I know a lot of Duke fans are very frustrated with them right now. It's who he is. This is his game. And if the officials are going to let it go, you got to adjust, you got to figure it out. And the thing with Tennessee is that even though they lost to Kai Ziegler, 
Ziegler is a very good point of attack defender, but they have a ton of other dudes that are super long, super active. Uh, Olivier Kamwa had a phenomenal, phenomenal game. I think he had like 25 points, uh, 10 rebounds, just completely got the better of Kyle Filipowski, frankly, in the game. And I think that that says a lot. I thought Lively was pretty good defensively, but more than anything, what we saw with his game in this one was how how much work his offensive game needs to play at the NBA level. Uh, it's not, look, you can get, you can get away with being limited in the NBA level. I don't think you can get away with being as limited as Derek Lively is right now on offense. He needs to be able to like really run dribble handoffs, short roll to pass, be like a super high level downhill rim runner. I think sometimes like he doesn't use that ability even as well as he could. I think he gets bumped a little bit from taggers and he doesn't get that downhill force that you're really hoping to find all the time. Uh, I do think, I do think spot player as much as anything. I I do think he is a good short roll passer though. I think that's an an area of his game where he, where he's pretty solid. It's just so dependent on having a guard that forces two defenders to come out on the perimeter to guard him. And I don't think okay. the Duke has really had that all year. So it's been been difficult to see that in prolonged stretches. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily hate that. Uh, you know, let's talk about the team that won this game. I mean, Tennessee, Tennessee is just old. They have yeah. Olivia Kamwa who's going off and they have, uh, you know, Julian Phillips who had that massive dunk. And you have uh, just, you know, going up and down. Yeah. The roster, like it's just older guys. Josiah Jordan James had uh, some really high level moments in that game. They are super tough. They are super physical defensively. I think Rick Barnes had a great game plan for shutting down Duke. Once you could shut down that ball screen stuff, that was really it for them. And, you know, I, I really liked what I saw from John Shire this season in general, especially the way that Duke grew throughout the year. I think that they ran some pretty good stuff for the most part throughout the year. It just felt like against Tennessee. They didn't have a ton of answers to me. Uh, It's yeah. And look, when you're facing one of the five best defenses in the country and you're teenagers, look, Mark Mitchell didn't play in this game as well. I think Mitchell would have helped them with that physicality too. But now, now come the questions about what do all these Duke guys do? I mean, Derek Whitehead, you know, he had a good first game, which Mark Schindler was super excited about. I was a little bit less enthused by it. Uh, I mean, what did you think of him against Tennessee? Uh, he's a verse. I, you know, I, after that game, I called him a offensive chameleon where he continues to try to adapt to whatever environment he's in and try to make the most out of it. I think what we're seeing right now though, is as he reaches higher level after higher level, he's just going to be so much more limited off the bounce and he's going to be very yeah. dependent on just a catch and shoot game. He's got phenomenal touch on the interior, but he's got very little deceleration tools at this point. Like, I don't know how I feel about him if he takes more than one dribble for a dribble pull-up right now, but I I do think that there's just enough shot-making that he's going to be a a good, reliable pro. Uh, I think he was the guy that Duke envisioned to be their number one option on offense this year. And part of the reason the roster doesn't seem like it makes sense the way that it's constructed is largely due to the fact that Whitehead hasn't been the player they envisioned. I think that's a really good call. And, you know, he obviously dealt with injuries. He obviously dealt with a few different things uh, this year. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. That's why they ended up not being able to win games. Now we find out what all these guys do. I mean, I'll be – 
interested to see if both Kyle Filipowski and Derek Whitehead, like a hundred percent are in the draft process or do they test just in case things don't go well for them in the pre-draft process. I think all of that remains to be seen a little bit. Uh, Derek Lively. We'll see. I think Derek Lively closed the season so well defensively that he probably should go. Right. Yep. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And then Proctor is another one. I think he's had the, the opposite effect of a Filipowski where, I think Kyle cooled off a little bit down the stretch run of the season, had some games where he just wasn't able to assert himself physically. Proctor got better a lot over that final month of the season where he could have a lot of intrigue for teams. He's still super young. He's a big point guard with feel. I keep coming back to this Duke experience of the lack of spacing around the pick and roll is a great kind of built-in excuse for why a guy like Proctor isn't able to showcase his great pick and roll passing. If you watch him play for yeah. Australian teams, he's been fantastic in creating for others out of ball screens. Uh, I think that there's really something to him at the next level. The question is, does he go this year or does he eye a little bit weaker of a 2024 draft class another year to keep improving and then say, that's the year I'm actually going to make a huge leap into hopefully the lottery. Yeah, I think that either option is going to be really interesting. If you told me he goes late in the first round this year, that would not blow me away. But he could go like top 10 easily next year with how that class is if things really yep. break right for him. Yep. Okay. Let's go to Kentucky and Kansas State. Okay. I will, I'm just going to give you the floor uh, to talk about Kansas State because I have a lot of Kentucky takes that I feel like I need to get off of my chest. And I want to talk about Kansas State first because they won the game and I think they deserve their flowers. I think that the biggest thing – that happened in this game, frankly, is something that Jerome Tang said after the game. He said, look, we had more dudes than them. And I agree with them. Keontae, jo- like Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel are better than anybody on Kentucky. And I know Kentucky fans won't like to hear that about Oscar Shibwe, but it's real. And I apologize for it, but it's real. And I think that we saw that today, that when it really comes down to it, those are the dudes that can win you NCAA tournament games. But your thoughts on Kansas State before I jump into a thing on Kentucky. Here. Jerome Tang is an unbelievable coach. To construct the roster that he has, to get the buy-in from his players and keep the vibes as immaculate as they have for the last four or five months is an outstanding coaching job on his part. I think Marquise Noel is probably one of – the most underrated players in college basketball and is a really damn good college point guard. The way he facilitates his shooting range, he forces teams to come out and guard him beyond the three-point line, which opens up the rest of the floor for Kansas State. They've got two really powerful mismatch wing front court attackers and Keontae Johnson and Naquan Tomlin who really thrive off of the space that he provides. And then Desi Sills comes in and really plays his role well, knows when to go, when to push tempo, can be a secondary handler when there's a little bit too much attention going to Noel. It's a well-thought-out team in terms of what Tang brought in and how he wanted to use some of the influences from his time at Baylor to really get this team to play as a cohesive group. Uh, They they never stop playing hard, though. And that's the thing about this, this Kansas State group is Kentucky can go on runs. They can be physical on the interior. Oscar Shibwe can try to post you up possession after possession after possession and have a massive strength advantage. They are not going to stop fighting. 
And I thought that uh, Naquan Tomlin actually had a, a pretty solid game on the interior defensively, just in terms of his, his effort and the way that he was going to continue to fight. Like Oscar is going to get his because Kentucky is going to run so many things through him and he's going to get a million offensive rebounds. It's just who he is and what he does. But the way that Tomlin fought and the way that Kansas State was able to push in transition to continue to try to run it down their throats and then have a guy who can create in the half court like Noel, Kentucky just had no answer. And I'm sure that that's going to be the the transition and segue into a really fun Sam Vecini rant here. Thank you for transitioning into that for me. Uh, yeah, so A, Kansas State, I think, deserves a lot of credit from their coaching staff perspective. This is a team that came into this game. They thought, okay, we're going to try and get Oscar into a bunch of high ball screens. Kentucky adjusted to that early. They did some pre-switching. They, you know, really helped out Oscar. They blitzed the ball out of Marquise Noel's hands pretty regularly. But then Kansas State did something that Alabama did really, really well, I thought, throughout the season. And it's in the second half they adjusted – from going to high ball screens to running a bit of offense and then getting Noel on the second side for a side ball screen, which is where it's a lot harder for Kentucky to be able to pre-switch or give Oscar help. And you can't really blitz side ball screens because if you do that with like an emptied side, it's just way too easy to hit that roller to a wide open spot or just then the roller can hit the wide open kick out to the corner. It creates way too much stress on your defense. The problem for Kentucky is that this roster is flawed to win a national title. This is a roster that can be successful in the regular season. This is not an NCAA tournament title roster. And the reason for that is kind of Oscar Shibwe, in my opinion. And I respect what Oscar has done. National Player of the Year last year, I didn't vote for him, but okay, that's fine. No idea how he made an All-American team this year. I know that the, you know, he averaged 15 and 15 or whatever. But the guys like Oscar Shibwe in any level of basketball at this point are going by the wayside. And I think that's what this season showed on some level. There are very few no defense, all offense, or all rebounding guys that were successful in college basketball this season. Hunter Dickinson, you know, is one that stands out. Armando Baycott stands out. Neither of those teams made the tournament. Zach Eady, his team lost in the first round. Uh, you know, Colin Castleton is a really good defender, but his team you know, did not make the tournament this year. You can go kind of across the board. Trace Jackson Davis is actually a pretty good defender, but if you're relying on these bigs like this, you know, Trace Jackson Davis just lost in the first, second round of the NCAA tournament, right? You can go down the list. There are very few high-level bigs remaining. One of them is Adama Sonogo, who is surrounded by the most versatile attacking defensive roster that you can build. Nobody on that team other than Hassan Diara is under six foot four, six foot five. And they are super aggressive. They have lineup versatility. They have they've built that roster perfectly for Adama Sonogo to be successful. Yeah. Ryan Kalkbrenner is a big that's been successful. Ryan Kalkbrenner is one of the best defenders in the country. Like that just and he does not require the ball. Ryan Kalkbrenner scores, you know, 13, 14 a game, but he does it exceptionally efficiently and doesn't need touches. Oscar Shibwe, to go back to the other side of this. 
is someone that likes touches crashes the offensive glass for sure. And gets a lot of his touches that way. I also think a lot of his offensive rebounds are off of his own misses, which is, you know, inflating that number a little bit. And he crushes the defensive glass for sure. But also a big part of why he crushes the defensive glass is that he doesn't always help when he's required to help or gets kind of pinned back uh, by someone who is trying to uh, just push him away from being able to protect the rim, seal him off at the basket. And he is just way too susceptible to those things. I don't think you can win a six game NCAA tournament, six games in a row with Oscar Shibway as your center. I respect everything that he has done. I do not think that you can win six straight games against coaching staffs that are trying to exploit every single thing that you do poorly on a night to night basis. When you have to play six different teams that have six different sets of skills, I don't think you can do that with Oscar Shibwe as your starting center. And I, because of that, you know, Oscar has one more year left if he wants it. I don't know if he'll want it, right? Like it feels like it's going to be, this felt like a last ride for Oscar on some level, right? I don't know that that does not come from reporting. This is just me speculating. It just kind of felt that way to me. I don't know if I would want Oscar back if I'm Kentucky. In fact, I I know that I would not want Oscar back, but I don't know if Kentucky feels that way. They probably don't feel that way, frankly. I don't blame them for not feeling that way. But we see this in the NBA. These guys like Andre Drummond that were NBA All-Stars. These guys like Nikola Vucevic. uh, You know, these rebounding bigs that are very limited in terms of skill set. Another thing we haven't talked about is the fact that you can't really give Oscar the ball outside of 12 feet away from the rim and expect him to make a good decision. He is not a five out player. He's not even really a four out player a lot of the time uh, because of how much he limits your ability to handle the ball uh, and to make plays uh, when teams blitz your ball handlers, which is something that more and more teams do in order to get it out of high level ball handlers hands. We've seen this in the NBA over the course of this last modern basketball stretch. Those ideals are trickling down to college basketball. The whole thing is that coaches are trying to get you out in space. They're trying to make your life much more difficult for these bigs that can't move. Oscar has proven that he cannot defend in ball screens at this point. It's okay. He does a lot well, but it limits your ceiling as a team. And if I'm Kentucky, I am not taking a single player on my roster that I feel like limits my ceiling beyond national championship. Oscar would be great for a number of other teams that are just looking to win 20 to 25 games in a season. For Kentucky, I don't think that he actually helps them. I think he hurts their chances at a national title despite the fact that he's averaged 20 and 20 in his three NCAA tournament games. But you know what happened in those three NCAA tournament games? In two of them, St. Peter's and Kansas State obliterated him in ball screens. Just crushed him. He was the entire like scouting report for those teams on offense. Take advantage of him. I think that if you're Kentucky, I think the Oscar era kind of has to end. I get it. I totally get it. Um, and look, it's, 
he's a productive player. He's a great kid and by all accounts, a really, really hard worker. Um, so you want to root for those guys to try to, you know, find ways to piece it together. But at the end of the day, like versatility is the name of the game. And over yeah. a six game stretch, you are, if you're John Calipari in Kentucky, you're banking that you won't run into a team that can stretch you out on the perimeter and play five out during that stretch. Or, or can just play ball screens. Or can just play like ball Kansas, screens. Kansas State doesn't really stretch out five out. Like, that's not what they do. They don't even, like, do a crazy amount of ball screen action. Like, they, they do a lot of it because Marquise Noel is no, unbelievable really and yeah. he's really, really good. But, like, they're not one of the teams that just, like, repeatedly, consistently attacks, 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 game after game after game like this. They're not Alabama no. in terms of that. But they did it today. Literally, they ran the same set again and again and again to get Oscar inside ball screens because it worked. And that's a problem. It's a real problem for Kentucky. Uh, I don't know if I have anything else to say about that. I mean, here's the other thing I will say about this. Think about this if you're Kentucky, right? The best players on this team were Kaysom Wallace, who's terrific, right? And I, I don't really have any beef. He, he struggled uh, throughout the latter part of the season with yep. injuries, but he was their best player on the court today, like undeniably. Yep. And the rest of your best players are a transfer from Illinois State, a transfer from Rhode Island, a uh, you know guy in Oscar who's a transfer from West Virginia who people certainly like, but again, I just went through my argument in terms of why I think he limits your ceiling long-term. Uh, Chris Livingston, who's a freshman that just wasn't quite ready, right? Lance Ware, who looks, you know, frankly, like a mid-major player. This is why Jerome Tang was right, saying... Kansas State had more dudes. They did. That's the reality of the situation. So that's what Kentucky's going to get back to something totally different next year. They have a great recruiting class coming in, led by DJ Wagner, Justin Edwards, Aaron Bradshaw, etc. I would imagine they're going to hit the transfer portal pretty hard as well. I would implore them value roster versatility and lineup versatility and shooting and floor spacing. Above all, it's hard to find all of those things in one player. I get that. But value lineup versatility above all with these guys. Wings, high-level defenders, shooters. Look, Antonio Reeves was a successful guy this year for them. That was useful for them. Find more guys like that maybe that can also defend on top of it. I'm with you. I think that's the modern recipe for success in the college game. And it's, it's built by the fact that so many bigger guys are now skilled and can play away from the basket. That if you can't match up to that, you're really going to struggle. Yeah. And frankly, like I see a lot of John Calipari hate like in game as a coach. I think you blame John Calipari for the way this roster is built for sure. But like, I I don't think you have another option today, like in game in terms of adjustments, it's just they're, they're limited in terms of what they can do because of what the roster looks like. Uh, And it's not hating on, well, I guess I just uh, discussed Oscar for a while at length. I also think severe Wheeler is a roster limiter on some level as well, but like, it's not a hate on like a lot of these individual players. It's just the way they fit together does not work in a manner that helps you win basketball games at the highest level. And Cal needs someone to get in his ear and explain this to him 
I think. Uh, otherwise, you know, Kentucky fans are pissed, and I think that they will continue to be pissed uh, if that doesn't change. Totally agree. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break, then we're going to run through the rest of this bracket. Okay, we're back. Adam, we're, I want to start with Florida Atlantic next because I just love this Florida Atlantic team. John L. Davis became the first player in NCAA tournament history to go for 25 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists, 5 steals in a single NCAA tournament game. John L. Davis, real NBA draft prospect, yes or no spins? Yeah, I'll give it to him. Uh, I, I've only caught a handful of FAU games this year, and he's been really good in all of them. So I have no reason to think that he shouldn't be at least somewhere on that radar. Yeah, I've liked the little bit I've seen of Davis as well. He's a sophomore. He doesn't have to come out this year by any no. stretch of the imagination. Um, but 39% three-point shooter, high-level rebounder, some passing ability, very aggressive, very athletic, very physical player despite being six foot four. I really like John L. Davis. Uh, I don't know if he's like a, you know, I don't think he's a first round pick or anything, but a guy to keep on your radar for sure moving forward. This Florida Atlantic team's just super fun. FDU is a great story. Ultimately, they just were always really going to struggle, in my opinion, to be able to keep teams to under that like 1.05 point per possession mark. When I talked to Cam Morrell for a story that I wrote on Fairly Dickinson uh, on Sunday, one of the things he said is like he was a little bit frustrated about like the Ken Palm numbers that have them as a the bottom 10 defense in the country. Uh, I, I kind of agree on some level, but you know, this is a team as well that even if you go by raw defensive efficiency, they're still in the bottom 100 nationally. They're not a good defensive team, right? And I think it was always going to be hard for them. I think it was just always going to be hard for them. This is a game where Florida Atlantic really took a lot of very difficult shots. It felt like they just thought they could out talent them on some level. And uh, I think they kind of did at the end of the day, but you know, shout out to FDU. They did a really good job game planning and scheming again. It's just that they ran into a team in FAU that is harder to scheme against than Purdue, probably not as talented, a team as Purdue is, but they are harder to scheme against because they present you with fewer drastic weak points for you to hammer again and again and again. Same as Kentucky. You know, we yep. can talk about this yep. again. Less talented team than Kentucky in all likelihood, but a team under Dusty May who built this roster in a really, really intelligent way to limit the weak points that teams are going to be able to exploit. They shoot the crap out of it, Sam, and they are they are not afraid to pull from deep. I think that at points in the game when this one with FDU was close, it was because some of their shot selection might have been a, lib a little too liberal, or they're taking some really quick ones as soon as they broke pressure, and and it just felt like you know Fairly Dickinson was able to control the tempo of the game until in that final like four four and a half minute stretch when Florida Atlantic really started to say, you know what? If we just keep penetrating and then repenetrating instead of taking the first available three, we're either going to get a wide open one at the rim or another wide open kick out that we can get these open threes on the second, third time around the perimeter. 
And that ended up being kind of what, what broke the game open for them late and why they ended up going on a big run offensively. I think Nicky Boyd is going to be a really good player for them. I, they're, they're just really deep, really solid all the way around. And they found a way to hide their big man defensively in switching everything and, and, and being you know, pretty active on that end of the floor uh, in ways that Fairleigh Dickinson just wasn't able to, to really take advantage of. Now, FDU also missed a ton of layups in the first half. Like this could have been a drastically different game if they actually converted at the rim. Uh, but Florida Atlantic with their pace, the speed that they play, and the fact that everybody can shoot it, like they will spread a lot of good teams out and they may give Tennessee a little bit of a challenge. This is going to be a huge contrast of styles in the next round. I agree with you. I am so fascinated. Yeah. That is the game I think I'm most interested in. Yeah. Uh, in the second round is trying to figure out what in the world happens in Tennessee, Florida Atlantic. I, I have absolutely yeah. no clue. But let's move on now as well and talk a little bit about Marquette against Michigan State. What a like disappointing, sad end for our beloved, yeah. beautiful Marquette Golden Eagles. Uh, Michigan State, shout out Michigan State. Tom Izzo did a great job developing a scheme that made their pick and roll attack much less effective, in my opinion. Uh, very, very impressive, impressive uh, schematic and game plan performance, particularly they did it with a lot of ball pressure with Tyson Walker, Jade Nakins at the point of attack, made it really hard to get into those sets more than anything. Uh, also, Iguodaro had a great game, but when Tyler Kolek is going for – I mean, I think he made that late. He made like one late shot, but like, uh, you know, if he's going for four points and really struggling to do anything, it's going to be a problem for Marquette. Yeah, they couldn't get uh, a worse time to have Kolek's worst game, to, to be frank. And you got to give the Michigan State guards credit. Their backcourt was really good at applying pressure. Like that first half and particularly the first 10 minutes of the game, I don't think any Marquette guard comfortably got into the lane. They were dribbling back and forth on the perimeter, could not break that first line of pressure from Michigan State's defense. And, you know, other than a really good effort in the second half from Igadaro, Cam Jones knocking down a few shots, it just looked like Marquette was laboring on offense for the first time. Like I haven't seen them actually have to work really hard in order to get open looks on the perimeter or on the interior for that matter. I don't think I've seen that all year from them. So this was, to me, all credit goes to Izzo and the game plan that he brought forth. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, just a sad, sad ending. And now we see what happens with this Marquette team. I know that Omax Prosper is a player that has some very real draft interest from teams. We will see if he decides to explore that. I also love Oso Iguodaro. I think Oso Iguodaro should test the pre-draft process, like unequivocally. He is Awesome. Uh, the way that he thinks the game, the way he processes the game, I have him as a top 60 guy right now. We'll see. We'll see what happens with him. I, I am an enormous fan, though. Uh, now Michigan State, they get to go on. They will play Kansas State, which is, you know, a game that could go either way. And Kansas yeah. State or Michigan State, you know, one of those two teams is going to go on to play uh, what is that? It's, Florida Atlantic yep. and Tennessee. So we have one of Florida Atlantic, Tennessee, Kansas State, or Michigan State in the Final Four. What a what a what a weird season! Yeah, like I mean, a, all the a lot of those teams other than Florida Atlantic, like you can make a case for it. But like Tennessee loses Zakai Ziegler, you know, Kansas State first year under Jerome Tang, 
Izzo, one of, frankly, like not his most talented teams. And then Florida Atlantic, one of those teams in the Final Four. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. Okay. Let's go. Uh, what what order do you want to go in here as we break down the rest of these games? Mm. Um, you know who I'm actually itching to talk about a little bit is the University of Connecticut. Let's do it. So we'll go to the West region now and just talk about all of those games, especially now that Gonzaga has won and uh, has finished off the TCU Horn Frogs. They will go on to play UCLA. Uh, let's let's talk about Connecticut because I think they look like maybe the best team so far in this yeah. tournament. If I'm being completely honest, they have. You want to talk about smart roster construction and the way that they've been built? I mean, Perfect. every piece just fits together so well. And Hurley is an X's and O's maestro who has intricate sets, who has so many options within those sets and empowers Jordan Hawkins to be really the main threat that teams have to focus on trying to take away. The challenge is, I think, over the last two weeks, Connecticut has figured out that when Jordan Hawkins is taken away, now they know how to play inside out and play through Adama Sonogo and play through Donovan Klingon a little bit more. But everything that they they are about and they have strikes fear into opponents. They're big. Across the board, positionally, they have size. Not just having Sonogo and Klingon on the inside, but one through five. They're taller, they're active, they're long, and they use that to apply pressure. Some teams that are longer and bigger try to sit back and use their length and just put their hand up from an, an arm's length away. Or say, you know what, we'll give you those shots and we'll just clean up the boards. No, Connecticut goes out there and they pick up their pressure. They have the identity of their coach. They want to be the aggressor. And I think one of the big reasons for that is actually one of the guys who I've started to fall in love with a little bit more, and that's Andre Jackson. The way that he impacts games in transition, both as a, a rim attacker and a playmaker for others, is phenomenal to watch. He is super aware of where shooters like Hawkins or Calcaterra are when they're running to the line. He's able to impact the game a little bit more cleanly there than in the half court. And then in the half court, Hurley gets the ball moving and gets players moving enough so that you don't notice that Jackson is a a non-shooting threat most of the time. But we talked a lot about this the style of play for big man earlier in this pod, Sam, where if you're just going to throw the ball inside and bank on getting more twos than other teams who are going to be really spaced around the three-point line and then say, like, we'll trade twos for threes and we can beat you that way. I don't think that's a recipe for success over a six-game sample anymore. But they play outside in at Connecticut. They try to get Hawkins off movement and off screens first. They have enough movement shooters and guys that are threats from beyond the line. And then as soon as Klingon or Sonogo set a pin down, they are sealing their man as hard as they can in the post. It makes it so easy to be able to throw the ball in there. The only thing that's going to stop Connecticut, to be honest with you, is Connecticut. A yeah. tough shooting night, a game where they uncharacteristically turn the ball over a little bit too much, where they're just they're not the best version of themselves. I strongly believe that with the versatility of this roster and the, the multitude of ways they can beat you, that as long as they're playing their best, they will be cutting down the nets in two weeks. So Connecticut can play you super big and super long. Like they can play, you know, their starting lineup, everyone is between six foot five and six foot nine, right? They can switch. They can play drop with Sonogo 
or they can bring out a super giant and Donovan Klingon and just go full drop and go full rim protection with a bunch of switchability around him. They can go very aggressive at the point of attack with those Diara and Andre Jackson duo lineups. They can go switchable across the board, really, if they want to, uh, because Sonogo can kind of do that a little bit more now. They can go hyper shooting if they want to with Calcaterra out there, with Hawkins and with Newton and with Caravan. I mean, like even Adama Sonogo has developed a very real, uh, you know, pick and pop game to an extent, I guess is the way to put it. It's you're right. I think that they are the team that has to beat themselves. I will say I'm interested to see them against Arkansas because I think that Arkansas is one of the few teams that is athletic enough that will be able to run around screens with guys like Hawkins, with guys like um, Calcaterra, with guys uh, like Tristan Newton. They're going to be able to really get into you at the point of attack with guys like Devo Davis and Anthony Black. I actually think that that is the key to – stopping Connecticut you have to be able to get into them at the point of attack having said that like St. Mary's can kind of do that a little bit Iona can kind of do that a little bit and they got through it after some first half issues they can't do it like Arkansas can and I think that that is why uh Arkansas is a fascinating matchup for them like a a genuinely really really interesting matchup for them plus they have Eric Musselman who is great I mean one of those dudes that I just absolutely do not want to play in a one game tournament, he will figure you out and then he will attack you possession after possession after possession doing the same exact thing. The thing is with must though, it's harder to do that against Connecticut than it is against every, anybody yes. else. And, and this is the game within a game here, Sam is the, the teams that have had success against Connecticut have taken away Jordan Hawkins most. And if he struggles and typically they don't find enough three-point shooting or floor spacing kind of overall offensive output to be able to win some games. We just watched Grady Dick kind of get limited a lot by Arkansas and the way that Anthony Black played him, chasing him off screens, the overall attention to detail that Eric Musselman put in their defensive game plan to try to limit Grady Dick because Kansas, like Connecticut, had those same issues. When Grady Dick fails to reach the eight-point mark, Kansas, I believe, was one in five on the season. So if you could shut down Grady Dick, they just wouldn't seem to have enough offense floor spacing, ways to generate clean looks for others because of that shooting gravity. The chess match here is going to be whether Musselman can hit some of those same buttons that Anthony Black is just the guy that takes that away. Or can Hurley and this UConn staff watch the film on that Kansas game, try to anticipate and find ways to use that type of coverage from Anthony Black, that super aggressive ball pressure that Arkansas is going to put on them, to UConn's advantage to try to not just get Hawkins some open looks and and create offense for him, but punish a team for being as aggressive as Arkansas is going to want to be on him on the perimeter. Just one thing that I'm thinking about moving forward, like, Yes, Musselman and Arkansas just showed the perfect game plan for how to take away a shooter. But can UConn stay a step ahead and learn from that, adjust preemptively to make sure that yeah. they move forward? The the guy that I think is going to be big in this game is going to be Nick Smith. Uh, Nick Smith needs to play better, uh, just oh, yeah. kind of straight up at mm-hmm. some on some 
level, right? 44 minutes in the NCAA tournament so far, six points. Uh, I believe he is two for 14 from the field. Just got to play better. Like if he's going to be a first round pick, a top 20 pick, he's got to do it. He's got to prove it. He's got to show that he can actually play in the way he has to play. UConn's going to make it hard on him. Uh, But Nick Smith is a difficult shot maker when he is right. I think Nick Smith is the key. If they get a good Nick Smith game, I think Arkansas can win. If they don't, I think that they probably don't have the offensive juice once UConn gets going downhill offensively in the way we've seen during the second halves of their games. Yeah, and we're going to get a Jordan Walsh and Andre Jackson matchup where they're guarding each other, and it's the real-life imagination of that Spider-Man meme where these two guys are kind of pointing at each other. Like That's going to be a really interesting matchup. Yeah, it is. And I would recommend doing it the way that you say, have Anthony Black on uh, Jordan Hawkins, and then you probably guard Andre Jackson – with Jordan Walsh just to try and get into his body and really frustrate him physically, I think as much as anything. Okay. Uh, anything stand out from you about the Arkansas, Kansas game? I guess we should talk about that very briefly before we move that on. Was a really good game. Uh, you know, I kind of mentioned it a little bit ago, I think taking away Grady Dick and just making his life a challenge in the half court is a recipe for success against Kansas. I got to give Grady Dick some credit. Like he found ways to try to impact the game for the better. He crashed the offensive glass relentlessly in their two games in the NCAA tournament. Like he is a guy that finds himself in the right spot time and time and time again. He just continually needs guys that can, can get him the ball in situations. I also want to give a quick shout out to Ricky council. Uh, you know, I know Devo Davis was great for Arkansas, but council, made some really timely passes in that game. I know he's been a little bit more wired to score first as an attacking downhill combo guard, but the way that he facilitated down the stretch run of that game for Arkansas was really impressive to me. Yeah, Devo Davis deserves a lot of credit, I I think, in this game. I mean, he was terrific defensively, obviously made a lot of really critical shots. Devo made up for, you know, Nick Smith, not necessarily uh, having it in these two games. So shout out to Devo Davis, was very emotional after that win in a way that I thought was incredible to see. I'm so glad that uh, he got to experience that moment. Uh, Let's, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say is, look, like Bill Self didn't coach this game. I find it very hard to believe that Grady Dick would have not gotten a shot in the final 12 minutes and that Jalen Wilson would, I think, have not taken a field goal attempt from like eight minutes left in the game until I think it might have been even like, like 30, 40 seconds left until he got those six late free throws. So, look, I I think if Bill Self is there, I think Kansas wins, just being completely real about it. Ricky Council deserves some credit as well, I think, as Gregory Castillo mentions in the comments. Uh, Just a really tough, tough dude, Ricky Council. Uh, Ricky Council the fourth, brother of Ricky Council the third, and Ricky Council the second. Love it. Our favorite favorite family names. I love that. Okay. Let's go down to that UCLA Northwestern bit of the region. UCLA beats Northwestern in what was an objectively hideous basketball game, 68 to 63. Look, UCLA has to make these games hideous. Northwestern tries to make these games hideous. Like this is what they do. Like Northwestern super aggressive at the point of attack with Chase Odige and Boo Booey. UCLA has a bunch of key defenders, like even Tiger Campbell's aggressive at the point of attack. Jaime Hawkins is super sharp at that end, Uh, obviously without Jalen Clark right now, but 
UCLA looks very good, I think, still, even without Jalen Clark. Uh, Adem Bona did play in this yeah. game. I thought he looked limited, but even just having him out there with his mobility and his ability to be multiple defensively, I think that's a really big advantage for them. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I, I, this was about surviving the first two games for UCLA, and they came out and bludgeoned to Asheville on Thursday night. But for them to be able to hang in there against a gritty Northwestern team that, again, makes games ugly and tries to find a way to win, now UCLA advance, look forward to Gonzaga and see what they can be able to do because that's going to be, as we talked about a week ago, Sam, one of the most fascinating games that we could get in this entire tournament. Oh, man. I mean, the physicality of UCLA against – Gonzaga just trying to run and go and play offense and play free-flowing offense. I mean, Gonzaga, like in that second half against CCU, there were just moments where they just got downhill and it was done. You know what I mean? Like once they get going downhill and once that avalanche starts rolling, the shots start falling. Malachi Smith gets involved. Drew Timmy's making step-back threes. Drew Timmy's in the post, and it's really hard to double Drew Timmy in the post because he's a really good passer now. Bona versus Timmy to me – is one of the biggest matchups that we're going to learn the most about both of them within in this entire NCAA tournament. I am someone that I think is like a little bit higher on Drew Timmy in terms of being just a draft prospect because I think he's a super fast brain player who is very real touch, has a lot of offensive upside, even if there are defensive limitations. Bona, on the other hand, is a high-level defensive prospect, someone that I think is uh, really going to have to make his ends meet on that end of the court. This is like the expert-level uh, audition for Adem Bona on a lot of levels uh, as an NBA draft prospect. Injury or not, he needs to play well. Otherwise, UCLA, uh, you know, I think is going to have a lot of problems stopping Gonzaga, even with uh, their physicality and toughness on defense. Yeah, I think Gonzaga would be wise to try to play a little smaller in this game, to try to speed up the tempo and force Jaime Hawkes to guard more of a shooter. I think if Anton Watson is out there next to Timmy and Hawkes can kind of play him a little bit more, I think that that plays to UCLA's advantage. Spread them out, really force Hawkes to get through screening actions, and we'll see uh, if UCLA can handle that. Yeah, I mean, my big question coming into, you know, Gonzaga's game against UCLA or Gonzaga's game against uh, TCU, I'm sorry, was what do they do to stop Mike Miles? Well, they didn't really stop Mike Miles. Mike Miles went for 24. Damian Ball went for 15, right? Uh, UCLA has Tiger Campbell, who I think is going to have not the easiest time in the world, but I think he's going to have some real freedom to be able to to try and make things happen across the court. I think that uh, Tiger Campbell and how he is able to beat those Gonzaga guards who are not the highest level guards in the country, in my opinion, is really interesting. I also just really, I really think they need to play Malachi Smith more in that game. I, I strongly believe that. Like I think Malachi Smith is better than Nolan Hickman. I've yeah, said that all season. Yeah. And I think that you're going to need that older veteran presence to be able to come in and really take advantage uh, of what UCLA is going to present you. And I think it would really help to have the bigger body who can slide his feet against Tiger Campbell, just to kind of wear him down over the course of the game. Yeah. Look, I don't want to call this a rivalry game in the NCAA tournament, but we all saw the Jalen Suggs buzzer beater from a couple of years ago 
which sent UCLA packing on oh, their huge th- run. This is a rivalry game. Th- this is an NCAA tournament rivalry. It's, these like Mark Few, you know, Mick Cronin, these these dudes want to win like badly. Uh, they both have experienced the other side of this yeah. uh, in these things. Like this is going to be a real thing this week. Yeah, and they're the two best programs on the West Coast right now. No disrespect to Tommy Lloyd in Arizona, but I think what Cronin has had at UCLA just a little bit predates how long Lloyd has been there. To see that and and, and Gonzaga going back and forth, uh, this is this is going to be a really intense matchup. Well, look, I mean, Mick Cronin, I believe, has made three Sweet 16s in a row at this yeah. point, has a Final Four. I, I don't really even think it's a discussion on yeah. some level that they've been a better program than Arizona uh, since Mick has been there. But m- maybe that changes uh, over the future. I think Tommy is a really great coach. And even though they lost uh, over the weekend, mm-hmm. I think they have a very real chance to continue that ball rolling down the hill at Arizona because Tommy is as good as he is. Uh Okay. Is there anything else I feel like, you know, Mike Miles is a guy that you've mentioned to me before. You really liked, you just want to uh, kind of mention a couple of things real quick about the guy that almost just carried TCU to uh, a sweet 16. Yeah. He's one of the youngest, if not the youngest juniors in the country has a ton of experience. Uh, he has had to play a much larger role as an offensive engine at TCU just because they haven't been built with a ton of other scorers. But if you go back, watch him play as the point guard for the USA I believe it was the U19 national team a couple of years ago where he got to play with Chet Holmgren and some other really talented players. He's much better suited for a balanced role where he can be more of a distributor, where he can play off ball and knock down shots comfortably. He is a small point guard, and those guys typically don't make it in the NBA. There's, I think, 25, 26 guys in the league right now who are 6'1 or shorter. Miles is a good defender. He's really well-rounded in the pick and roll. He converts on the interior. He can shoot it and play off ball. He checks a lot of those boxes. It's just, is he going to have enough of a combination of all of those things to impact the game every single night to stick in the NBA? But I love him for the intangibles that he has. He's a really, really good, really, really good player. Yeah, I think the thing that I've said to a couple agents and a couple of uh uh, GMs over here and scouts is I think he is a future NBL MVP. Uh, look, and there's no disrespect. Like Nothing Bryce Cotton, yep. Bryce Cotton is one of the 450 best players in the world. He just chooses to make his living over here. And again, I mean that in no disrespect to Mike miles, I think that he's going to be an absolute killer as a pro. It's just really hard for small guards in the NBA right now, like exceptionally hard for small guards. Yeah, and he's got a lot of the intangibles to try to bridge that gap a little bit. I call him a competitive psycho, like the way that he is hardwired. He's just going to show up to every big every big game and compete his hardest in every little game and turn it into a big game. So uh, I'm not willing to bet against a guy like Mike Miles, but certainly the deck is a little bit stacked against players as small as he is. The, the region that looks the most normal, if you're just looking at a bracket right now, is the Midwest. We have number one, Houston against number five, Miami. Number two, Texas against number three, Xavier. This is the region that like I just – I thought was not the best region in terms of talent. Like I thought that you know the West was unequivocally loaded and had a case as maybe the best region I've ever seen. Like Kansas, 
uh, St. Mary's, UConn, Gonzaga, and UCLA. That's five teams that were all in the top 10 of Ken Palm, I think, entering the NCAA tournament. And then on top of it, you had like landmines like TCU, who's like a very clear top 25 team. And then you had, uh, you know, who, who else is in this region? It's VCU who'd won 17 games in a row. Arkansas was the top 20 team in Ken Palm entering this tournament. It was just an absolutely ridiculous yeah. region. So we were always going to get some fuckery in that region, it felt like. Uh, the Midwest was just not as not as deep and not as talented. And now we're sitting here with a chalk bracket, basically. Shout out Miami for five beating a four with Indiana. And, you know, I think Houston, as long as Marcus Sasser is healthy moving forward, I think they remain very well positioned to come out of this region. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see the Jairus Walker versus Norchad Omir bar fight that is going to erupt next week. And Dewan Roberts too, by the way. And like those guys are just going to punch each other in the mouth, every single possession going for rebounds. And it is going to be glorious to watch. I think that Sasser and, you know, hopefully shed and and Tremont Mark, like those guys match up really well with Miami's guards where they tend to beat teams is by having so much speed and just like jitterbug movements at the point of attack with guys like Nigel Pack and Isaiah Wong that it's hard to keep them in front because they space the floor so well. Uh, I think Houston matches up really well with Miami. Like the success that they had against Indiana tonight is, is going to be hard to replicate against a team like Houston, who's much more mobile much quicker, much more aggressive at the point of attack and can really keep guys in front. It's interesting. I think that I think Houston just is kind of a better version of what Miami does on a lot of levels because they're better defensively at the point of attack than Miami is. Like I would expect that Jamal Shedd is going to cause some real problems for Nigel Pack. And I would expect that uh, Marcus Sasser, Isaiah Wong, as much as I am higher on Isaiah Wong than I think most people are, and I have him as a top 60 prospect in this draft, despite being ridiculed by many people recently, uh, I, I think that Isaiah Wong is probably going to struggle more with Marcus Sasser on defense than Marcus Sasser is going to struggle with Isaiah Wong on defense. And, uh, you know, Isaiah is a little bit bigger than Marcus. Maybe he can use his length to really frustrate him in that way. But uh, just a real quick note on this Indiana Miami game as well, man, I thought Miami just was absolutely tremendous in how they took advantage of pressuring Indiana. It was what I thought Kent state would do. And then sincere carry got hurt in the pregame, unfortunately. And that felt like a really deflating thing. Pressured them at the point of attack at a really high level, made life really, really hard on their guards. And while trace Jackson Davis tried his absolute best to try and, do everything he could to win that game for Indiana. It, it just felt like they didn't really have the guard play. Like even Jalen Hood Shafino, who goes for 19, he had like two or three really late threes. And it felt like he took three a bunch of, of like, yep. yeah, a bunch of really bad threes earlier in the game. Uh, and then you look at like, you know, Trey Galloway, I didn't think was all that successful in that game. You know, Tamar Bates, like looked like he couldn't even really no. like, you know, all due respect as a guy that I've liked in the past, felt like he couldn't really play in that game. So Miami's guards in their backcourt just really took high level advantage of everything they wanted to do. Yep. Yeah. Miami was, uh, was a tough matchup for the Hoosiers, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's go to the bottom end of this region here. Uh, we'll, we'll wait. Do we, do we have anything else we want to talk about with 
that Houston Auburn game. Not really, right? No. That was just kind of a like Houston Avalanche in the second half. Yes. And, and and they do that to people. They turn up their defensive intensity and they just blitz you out of the gate. Like Tremont Mark, great game, great showing from him. Good to see that. I'm just glad I don't have to watch Auburn play anymore. Uh, their their <laughs> their their offense is just a migraine waiting to happen. Oh, it's not great, is it? No. Okay, let's go to the bottom end of this region. Xavier and Texas. Uh Look, I'm going to be honest with you. Today was the day where I had to tap out. I couldn't wake up at 3 a.m. again today. (laughs) I couldn't do it. I was wiped. I was tired. I apologize to Sean Miller and Jeff Capel. I apologize to my Pittsburgh brethren. I'm wearing the Pittsburgh hat in apology. I couldn't do it. Did you see this game? Yeah, I watched it for, for, you know, long spurts um, while I was doing a couple other things like Kunkel went off and early on his, his three point shooting bill, he was nuclear and that gave Xavier a big lead. I thought Colby Jones did a great job on the defensive end yet again, just shutting down teams. And it's the same thing for them in, in round one. Like when Colby Jones decided to just put the clamps on, he changes a game defensively. I don't think he's been great on the offensive end of the floor, this tournament, I mean, two of three from three, 10 points, 14 rebounds, seven assists. Like he did a little bit of everything against Pittsburgh, but he's not scoring the ball super effectively right now. Was not a good game from Sule Boom either, but uh, Hunter and Nunji have both been really solid. Nunji on the defensive end is locking down the paint for them in a real meaningful way in this tournament. Xavier just, they're not deep enough right now. They play really six guys, meaningful minutes. And I think that this is going to be a challenge for them coming up with a Texas team that is really deep, that does apply a ton of pressure and just wants to go, go, go. I I don't know how Xavier's going to have the ponies to keep up with that if it turns into a track meet. So Xavier is interesting because they have really struggled defensively early in the season with Zach Fremantle. And since Zach Fremantle is out, they're actually a top 50 defense in the country. And I think a big part of that is not having him around and having Jerome Hunter, who is just a better defender at the end of the day. And I think that their lineup balance, and this again comes from watching the first game and watching them in the Big East tournament and everything like that. I think that their lineup balance is much better right now with Jerome Hunter out there than it was when Fremantle was out there. And as good as as skilled as Zach Fremantle is, and he was in the process of having a really high-level season, you know, was passing at a high level, was shooting the ball. Uh, I had a couple people even, like, reach out to me and ask, like, is this guy, like, kind of a sneaky prospect if we up his three-point volume? And I'm not really there, but he's a very skilled player. I do think it's not addition by subtraction because you're right. Like, the depth is a real factor here, especially against Texas. But I think that these lineups with Jerome Hunter in place of Zach Fremantle do help them in NCAA tournament settings. And I wonder if Sean would have been as willing to go that route if Fremantle was still on the roster and still like playing. He's still on the yeah. roster, obviously. No, that's a great point. That's a, a really good point. But, uh, you know, Texas, again, they're another team with just the, the avalanche of energy that they can bring to you. Uh, they're going to be dangerous to the remaining way here because you look at the top half of that there, like a Texas-Houston matchup would be a ton of fun. My goodness. 
Yeah, I, I kind of need to see that matchup, yeah. to be honest. Like, I, I really need to see it. I didn't watch the Penn State-Texas game until this morning. Uh, how about my my guy Dylan Disu, baby? 12-foot floaters for days. Let's go. A great, great close to the game for him and from Texas. Like, Penn State did everything that they could to try to make that a game. They came out and blitzed them at the start of the second half and just proved that, like every Micah Shrewsbury team, they're just not going to go away. Like, Jalen Pickett made tough shot after tough shot. Lundy had some huge rebounds and just some of the energy plays that he made made you think, like, that's just the guy I would want to play with. But Texas responded, and Dylan Deesu was was great for them down the stretch. Yeah, it sucks that, you know, you're right. Like Jalen Pickett made some big plays at the end, but it, this one felt like the one where you could really see his limitations on display uh, when faced with athleticism yeah. and mobility of Texas. Uh, he had one assist versus seven turnovers in this game. This this was not the best. And this I really like Jalen Pickett. Like I, I you know, I think he has had a phenomenal season as you know the king of booty ball at penn state but you know th- this is one where you could see the limitations of that when they could collapse down and recover out and obviously he has real limitations as like a ball screen uh player just due to his lack of burst in a real way uh you know when you play teams like this and booty ball isn't necessarily going to be the most effective thing in the world what can you adjust to? And I don't know that Jalen Pickett quite had enough juice uh, for as great as he was this season, a very worthy all American. Don't know that he had quite enough juice to be able to like make it happen uh, as a, as a pick and roll player, as an overall uh, offensive weapon around him to really break down defenders because that's what they have to do. That's why booty ball was invented, right? They had to find a way to break down defenders and collapse defenses to spray the ball out to shooters. And you know, if you can't really collapse defenses because Texas has dudes that can physically match up with Jalen Pickett, it becomes a lot harder. Yeah. Shout out to Serge Barry Rice. Move over Arthur Kaluma because Rice has my favorite shot fake in the country now. The way that he gets guys in the air time and time again, like he gets everything but his big toe off the ground. And yeah. it is, it's mesmerizing to watch. It's really, really something. Yeah. And for what it's worth, what we've seen from Micah Shrewsbury over the last couple of years at Penn State, uh, to me, like this is a, this is a no brainer hire, like wherever you want to go. He is, he is right. so smart. He's going to get kids. He's going to figure out uh, kids that work for what he wants to do. He's going to devise a scheme. If it doesn't work for what he wants to do, he's going to devise a scheme that works for the kids he has. Home run hire. If he ends up leaving Penn State, Penn State, I would be doing everything I could to keep yeah. that dude. And Penn State has enough money to be able to try and keep him if they really wanted to. They can drop the bag. If I was Penn State, this is the one I'd be dropping the bag for. Uh, if I was, you know, Georgetown, Notre Dame, whoever else is out there that Micah Shrewsbury has been connected with, unequivocally, like a a no doubter to me, it's a hire. Incredible, incredible coach and tactical mind, just brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the South region now. And we talked a little bit about Princeton at the top here, but I, I want to give you give you the road here to talk a bit more about Princeton, who 15 seed in the Sweet 16 for the third consecutive year. Uh, Oral Roberts 
previously in 2021, St. Peter's last year in 2022, now Princeton in 2023. Really, really fun group uh, that is built around five out offense and a coaching staff that has, if we're doing like coach of the NCAA tournament, Mitch, baby. I mean, like all due respect to Tobin Anderson and those guys and what they did to beat Purdue. It's Mitch Anderson. I mean, my goodness, their their game plans have been so on point against Arizona, collapsing, forcing Tubelis to be a perimeter player, uh, spacing them out offensively, playing that uh, not even like a traditional Princeton style. Yes, like that's the thing. Like they're not just like oh, like we're gonna have Tucson come out and you know handle the ball and then hit back cutters and all that stuff it was more they were just trying to like iso and find like mismatch opportunities above all and then against missouri uh you know what they did that was really smart against missouri i thought and actually gave me real pause on kobe brown actually as a prospect they defended kobe brown with a guard in that game and they forced kobe brown to try and be a big and he wasn't able to take advantage of being six foot nine, 250 pounds in a real way. Uh, again, just like brilliant, brilliant stuff, I thought, from Mitch Henderson, Brett McConnell, everyone on that staff that does a really good job. Yeah, shout out to those guys. Uh, you know, I've known Mitch for a number of years now, I think seven or eight years, maybe even more at this point. Um, and, you know, he's known as being the guy who was jumping in the air when Princeton beat UCLA and and had that huge part of the upset. So he's known as a Princeton guy through and through. And this is a team that has so many of those Princeton principles on the offensive end of the floor, the Pete Carrill floor spacing and back doors and ball and player movement without the dribble. But he has Taylor made many of those concepts to the best players that he has on this roster. He's enabled them to be much more of a three point shooting floor spacing group than you would typically see from a Princeton offense. He has enabled them to clear out sides of the floor and let Tosan take advantage of many mismatches when he gets them. He has been really clever at finding ways to play two bigs at the same time while keeping that floor spacing going. I am really impressed with the coaching job that he has done. And while the offense has been a constant throughout the year, like you mentioned, the defensive game planning in whether it's four or five days time to get ready for Arizona or 48 hours to get ready for Missouri, the lineup versatility that he can throw out there because Tosan is so unique as a player makes him a really, really just fascinating, fun team to watch because it's a coach's dream, to be honest with you, because Mitch can hit so many buttons and know that every single one of the guys on his roster can respond and execute it. So now here is the fun question. <clears throat> Creighton has Ryan Kalkbrenner. Yeah. Ryan Kalkbrenner, the team that actually showed the ability to take advantage of Ryan Kalkbrenner, was Arizona in ball screen actions. Right. I am fascinated to see what Princeton does with Kalkbrenner. Kalkbrenner, I think, got a little bit better throughout the course of the season, especially later in Big East play, being able to be a bit more versatile within ball screen defensive structures. Princeton's going to stretch him out and make it to where they're going to try and pull him away from the basket and try and get shots. That's what that game comes down to. If they're able to get Ryan Kalkbrenner away from the rim, or if they just, you know, 
Kalkbrenner decides to play drop the entire game and they don't make shots. The Kalkbrenner pick and roll, Kalkbrenner uh, out in space versus at the rim kind of process there is going to be the thing that swings that game and how it ends up playing out over the course of the entire uh, entire game. Yeah, uh, another one of those who can impose their will on the other team type of matchups because it's going to be a Kalkbrenner. I've always liked him as a player, not but not loved him because while he he's had some good offensive games and moments, like his value comes from protecting the paint and being a really good interior shot blocker and defender, but if a team isn't going to attack you that way and is going to beat you somewhere else, is he a net positive for the, the Blue Jays? I, I've, I've always wondered that question. Like He's much better than any other option that they have. There are no other ways that McDermott can construct their lineups in order to get more out of this Creighton team. But I think that it is an area that can easily be exploited. And that's why this Princeton team is going to be really interesting to match up with them. The other thing that really gives me confidence, I guess I would say, in Creighton in this game is Kalkbrenner's game against NC State. In general, it feels like Creighton is like trying to like, you know, pull him along and like pull him out of his shell to be as good as he can be on offense. He can fucking shoot the ball. He can like really shoot and he doesn't shoot. And he's so efficient at the basket. Like I think he's just unselfish to a fault. And Princeton does not have anybody that can guard him. uh, If they really want to put the ball down to him on the block, because the difference between Creighton and Arizona offensively is that Creighton has real perimeter talent that you have to stay attached to at all times. Like, You can't just shade down and like pack the paint against Creighton at the end of the day. Like that just is not going to work because Baylor Shireman will kill you from three. Trey Alexander is going to kill you from three. Ryan Nemhard, by the way, today went for like 30 and it felt like he was never going to miss a shot and he's capable of beating you from three. Kaluma will attack closeouts. Like they have dudes. Farabello will knock down shots from three. They space the court much better than what Arizona does. And they're a much, you know, all due respect to Tommy Lloyd, who gets a lot out of uh, the scheme that they run and the style of play that they have. Greg McDermott is better than Tommy Lloyd at calling the right set at the right time that you maybe haven't yep. seen before that will get them an open look. So I do think Creighton wins this game. I think Creighton wins this game, like, honestly, like a little bit easily, if I'm being honest. Uh, But I I also said that about Arizona against Princeton, and I was fucking wrong. (laughs) They're just, I don't want to call them the team of destiny right now, but, like, they keep finding (laughs) ways to just win basketball games. They shoot the ball well enough. They score efficiently on the inside. They rebound, and they're executing defensive game plans, like, game after game. They're They're just good, and they were a lot better than Missouri was over the weekend, a lot better. Yep. Okay. Now this little final. Do you do you want to talk any about Creighton Baylor? By the way, you I, know, I not, guess we should. Yeah, I, I didn't tune into much of that game just because there were so many other fun matchups going on at or around the same time. That was the UConn game. That was a fairly Dickinson game. Yeah. Um, you know, 
strange end of the season for Keontae George. Ever since he hurt his ankle in that Texas game, he hasn't really looked right. Baylor yeah. just did not make a ton of shots. We talked about it a week ago. Like they are a team that lives by the three, dies by the three. And like Cryer hit a couple today, but no one else really showed up from from outside. So uh, Creighton just kind of had their way with them, it seemed. Yeah, and you know what? At the end of the day, to me, the problem was that it's what Baylor had problems with all season. They've never figured out the defensive side yeah. of the court. Um, they, they've tried a few different things, and it just felt like this uh, this group of players, the way that they play cohesively together, never never came along. Like It felt like there was never proper help principles. It felt like there were never real on-ball point-of-attack guys that could frustrate you. Um it just felt like they did not have the dudes to be able to run a coherent defensive structure at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's part of the problem that they've had all season and it it caught up to them against Creighton and it leaves them no margin for error on the offensive end. Yep. Okay. Alabama and San Diego state, uh, you know, San Diego state, against Furman was never really a game. <laughs> yeah. Alabama against Maryland was frankly never really a game. Do you have anything that you want to talk about with this coming matchup for Brandon Miller and Alabama? I think the the takeaway for me is I th- I get the sense that Brandon Miller based on the way that he's guarded and based on the way that Alabama sees their matchups They'll use Miller either as a scorer and more of a floor spacer or a facilitator out of the pick and roll. And I'm just curious to see which one they they think he's going to be in this game. If they're anticipating how San Diego State is going to defend him, how physical they're going to be, who they're going to be able to put on him. Uh, I don't see Alabama getting a ton of second chance points in this one just because San Diego State is so physical. Um but I, I want to know if Brandon Miller can toggle between some of those assignments in the same game. Can he be the floor spacer for a period and then be the pick and roll handler? Can he be more of a pick and roll scorer as opposed to just going out there and trying to create for others and, and be really, really solid? He, he seems a little predetermined on the matchups that, that they know are going to be best coming into the game. I want to see if there's a, a way that San Diego State can dare him to try to do all of them throughout the game and switch defenses and coverages on him. Yeah, I think what I'm most interested in here is that I think he actually has to have a big game here because Lamont Butler, Darion Trammell, San Diego State in general, their identity is they're going to get you at the point of attack. Like They're going to come out and they're going to try and fight you out there. Uh, Lamont Butler, particularly, that dude is a dog on defense. Like, he is going to absolutely come at you and be as physical, as quick, as disruptive as he can every single time. Guys like Javon Quinterly, Jaden Bradley, uh, you know, they're going to have a tough time in in this game. And like Jaden Bradley, you know, he he barely played against Maryland as well. So, like, uh, you know, it, it'll be Mark Sears and Javon Quinterly, it feels like, a lot of the time. And we'll see what it looks like, I guess, right? Like, can Lamont Butler in that point of attack defense slow them down? If they can, it's going to be on Brandon to be yeah. able to create and be that guy. He's going to have to be that dude on some level. The thing that worries me, though, in general about San Diego State 
is that they give up a super low percentage from three. They do get really good contests. They give up a ton of threes, and that is a tough, tough way to live against Alabama if you're giving up even like semi-open threes with the way that you play. You know, if they can stop that driving kick game by being tight at the point of attack and getting through screens like they're capable of, it'll be really interesting. It's going to be a really interesting battle for Alabama against San Diego State on the defensive end because on top of it, San Diego State has one of the most underrated rim protectors uh, in the country in Nathan Mensah. Nathan Mensah is like a – there was a real case for Nathan Mensah to have been like you know, a semifinalist for the National Defensive Player of the Year award this year, maybe even like a top 10 finalist, if I'm being completely honest. And I don't believe he was. He is a tremendous, tremendous rim protector. So the way that this game goes, it could be a little bit ugly. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, I don't know how San Diego State's going to score against Alabama is what it comes down to for me personally. Alabama's defense, you know, led by new Georgia Southern head coach, Charlie Henry, uh, shout out Charlie Henry, who is uh, the guy who kind of runs their defense a lot of the time. Really, really sharp analytical mind and a guy that I think is going to have them ready to go to shut down what San Diego State's going to try and do uh, on the offensive end. Yeah, it'll be ugly. It'll be a bloodbath. Uh, I'm glad you clarified the perimeter pressure that the Aztecs put on opposing guards. I think that's what leads me to believe that this is going to be a heavy Brandon Miller pick and roll game. It's just, is he going to be much more of a playmaker, a scorer? Can they generate different looks for him off ball, considering all that pressure is coming? Like, It's going to be a big game needed from Miller, but how many different ways can Alabama set him up to succeed as opposed to just a steady diet of, okay, Brandon, we need you to bail us out. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Last thing we're going to do here before we go. We're going to pick these games, and we're going to pick the rest of the bracket, and we're going to go quick. Alabama, San Diego State. Bama. Creighton, Princeton. Uh, I'll go Creighton. I'm also going Creighton. Yeah. Florida, Atlantic, Tennessee. This is, this is the weird one to me. Um, this is the weird one. Yeah. Experience. I'm not betting against Tennessee again after watching what they did to Duke. I'll go the Vols. I think I'm going to go Tennessee. I have no idea how that yeah. game goes. None. Like they're – Whoever dictates the pace is going to dictate that game, and I think that Tennessee probably is going to be able to just with their physicality. We will see. Kansas State, Michigan State. Michigan State. I'm going Kansas State, actually, there. Okay. Uh, Let's go back to the top. Houston, Miami. Houston. Xavier, Texas. Texas. I I keep picking against Texas, and I just need to stop on something. (laughs) Like – until they run into someone better than them, like I just need to stop. Texas. Uh Yukon, Arkansas. Yukon. I am picking Connecticut with my heart here, I think more than anything else. Uh I have been high on this Connecticut team the entire season. I think they've been tremendous. I am terrified by this matchup if I'm Connecticut. I think they have real ability to slow down what Connecticut is going to be able to do. Uh okay. UCLA Gonzaga. I'm going with the Zags. I'm going UCLA. Okay. Alabama Creighton. Bama. Agree. Yeah. Uh, for you, Tennessee and Kansas or uh, Michigan State. I'll go Tennessee. 
I am also going Tennessee in my case against Kansas State. Uh, Houston against Texas. Oh, oh. I mean, health aside, like, I want to pick Houston, but if, if they're not completely at 100% going into that second game there, I got to go Texas. Okay, so you're picking Texas. It's like an asterisk one for me. I'll, I'll pick Texas. Okay, I'm going to go Houston. Yeah. And then Connecticut and for you, Gonzaga? Yeah, I'm going UConn. I'm also going UConn in my case against UCLA. Uh, Alabama and Tennessee for both of us, right? Yeah, I'm going Bama. I'm actually going to look up real quick what happened in those two matchups this year. Yeah, uh, Alabama, it's really funny. So if this is the way it would go, assuming both of us are going to pick Connecticut on the other side, right? Connecticut yeah, we are. Houston, yeah. yeah. Um, two of the five teams to beat Alabama this season are – Oh, by the way, three of the five teams to beat Alabama this season are Connecticut, Gonzaga, and Tennessee. Tennessee beat them at home, Tennessee at home, that is, uh, by nine, by really frustrating them. Uh, I am going to go Alabama here. I do think that it will be very difficult against Alabama's defense for Tennessee to get anything. I think that's a fun matchup, though. Okay, and then Connecticut against, uh, against Houston. We're both going Connecticut here. Yep. We are. Any explanation why? The multitude of ways that they can beat teams. I think that even if Houston puts a ton of ball pressure on them, if Texas puts a ton of ball pressure on them, UConn will find ways to use their the movement, the seam, the schemes, the sets within their offense to get low post position, to force Jarris Walker, to force anybody else out on the perimeter to just over pressure, and then they can – kill you one-on-one down low i don't see houston or texas having enough size to answer for uconn on the interior for me it's that houston is very reliant on offensive rebounding and connecticut Mm. is one of the few teams that can actually rebound with them connecticut is the best offensive rebounding team in the country and is actually a really good defensive rebounding team houston's only been okay as a defensive rebounding team this year i think connecticut would win the rebounding battle okay now we get to a rematch of the PK-85, Connecticut-Alabama. Oh. I have this, by the way, in a bra- I have this in a bracket of mine yeah. somewhere. Good for you. I had, uh, I had Bama-Kansas, so uh, poor one out for the Jayhawks there. I'm going with Alabama. That was my pick at the start of this tournament. I don't know if I've seen enough to, to pick against them yet. Um, they can, they're just an underrated defensive team that has the best player in the tournament, and Brandon Miller, a real offensive identity and depth at both the big and the guard spots. I just I think that they're going to be really really tough to get all of those pieces on an off night at the same time in order to beat them. Yeah, I mean just just to be clear here, like Connecticut, like in the second half of that game, like boat raced them earlier this year. Like it, it was it was hard for Alabama. I am still going Alabama. But that is a hell of – I need that be fun. final. Yeah, like, be I, fun. I actually, like, kind of desperately need that final because that, that is the one that I think would be most fun yeah. for all of us. Oh, okay. Yeah. Spence, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life, everything that you uh, need to get off your chest. Yeah, well, Sam, thanks again for having me on here. Always a blast. Um, you can find me on Twitter at the one underscore. 
at my Substack, theboxandone.substack.com, or on YouTube with my name, Adam Spinella. Just released a Cam Whitmore scouting report video over the weekend. That's right. Have some accompanying words coming out, as well as a piece on kind of the stock risers and fallers from the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. But I'm just looking forward to the next 15 college basketball games that we will get to see before we determine a champion. I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay. You can find me over at The Athletic. I have written a big deep dive into how Fairleigh Dickinson defeated Purdue. It's a really fun story. I talked to one of their assistants. It was super enjoyable to write. I had a great time with it. Please, everyone, go read that. It, like I, it, It's one of the more fun things I feel like I've written all year. Uh, I will have a thing on the Houston Rockets uh, roster and like their kind of draft future coming up with Kelly Eco later in the week, I think on Tuesday. And then uh, probably a couple other things coming. Who the hell knows? I get over to the United States next week. So I'm excited about that. Not uh, this coming week for the Sweet 16 to Elite Eight, but for the Final Four. Uh, so we'll have to mix and match what we're doing podcast-wise. But until next time, folks, we will talk soon.